children's church hour, and if you want to stand with me for the reading of the scripture this morning, I'm not going to read from the passage I'm going to teach from, I'm going to read from Romans 8, and hopefully you'll see the connection between the two as I read Hosea as we get into the teaching this morning. We're going, I'm Hosea, we're going through the book of Amos, I'm, I'm all over the Bible this morning. Our passage is Amos 4, and we're going to do the whole chapter, but there's an important lesson to learn in God's chastisement in our lives, and so that's what we're going to be studying this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 18, and the first clause of verse 24 is where our reading will be. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. You may be seated. So what does that have to do with Amos 4? Well, Amos chapter 4 is a display of God's chastisement on the nation of Israel. So if you want to just be turning to Amos chapter 4. But before we go into the text, I want to share with you just a few things that God has put on my heart this morning. And it was through the Sunday school lesson that I was preparing and looking at Amos chapter 4 and just looking at, at life in general, that all of us go through trials, we all go through suffering, we all experience affliction. I think it was, it's been fresh on my mind too, um, with the part, departure of, of our brother in Christ, uh, Steve Folgers, who, who passed away yesterday morning early, watching his decline, watching Dev go through all the trials that she has been through. Um, it's just made me, I guess, reflect on, on life. So this morning, I was preparing for our, our new believers class, and, or, and, and it's not just, it's, it's not a new believers class, it's, it's some deep theology in Genesis. And the result of sin was what we just read 
in Romans chapter 8. Creation was subjected to futility. And all of creation is not the way God designed it. And suffering and death and disease and mildew and decay, that was never a part of God's created design. When God created everything, it was good. It was very good. In Amos chapter 4, we see God in his sovereignty. And remember how we define sovereignty. Sovereignty is not God's meticulous determinism of every thought or every action of evil people. But it's God's right to do as he chooses. God is sovereign and God has the right to intervene in human history however he chooses. And the greatest display of God's sovereignty and his choice to intervene in humanity was the incarnation. Christ came and he healed and he took away disease. It was almost alleviated from Israel. Everyone who came to Jesus was made whole. And we love to quote Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then why are we not whole? Why are we not physically healed? Jesus' incarnation was a demonstration of divinity. God Almighty coming into human time and suffering. And he was showing us that he has the power to reverse the curse. That's who Christ is. He has the power to defeat everything that Satan introduced into this world. But his ultimate display of God interacting in human time and in our lives was his death on the cross to give us hope. Now, when man sinned in the garden, what did God do? He cursed the ground. He made life futile. He made it where, where we were to trust in anything that man made. Man is always trying to cover over his mess-ups. And he does it with man-made fig leaves. And God is providing an eternal solution, not a temporary solution to man's ailments and problems. And in God's mercy and in God's love, he banishes man from the garden. Now, why did he do that? And he cursed the ground, and he says, Adam, I want you to find life outside of the garden to be frustrating, to be futile, and compelling you to seek me. And I think that is the importance of discipline. God's chastisement, God's correction is because he wants us to seek him. He doesn't want us to find our purpose. He doesn't want us to find meaning in life outside of Him. In Him is life. 
and the life is the light of the world. And everything was made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And he is the true light that lights every man, not some of us. Everyone has a spark of divinity. He is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. That's Bible. That's not my philosophy. That's not my theology. That's John chapter 1. That is our God. And our God allows some suffering, and he permits it, and God chooses when he will afflict us out of his loving kindness as well. God's chastisement is his corrective discipline. God doesn't chastise us out of his pleasure. He chastises us out of his love and his goodness. Chastisement and correction and affliction are God's graces. Now, man will respond either one of two ways to affliction and the garbage that happens in this life. Either it will draw us closer to God or it will drive us farther away from God. I watched this interview this week that broke my heart. It was a world-class soccer player. And this young lady in the press conference begins to blaspheme and to degradate the Creator and to denounce that there is even a God because her Achilles tendon snapped and she will never play soccer again. Oh, woe is her. She's a multimillionaire. If that's all you have to worry about, you are blessed. You go over to Iraq, you go over to Afghanistan, and you find out what life is like outside of our little cushy corner of the world. If that's all you have to worry about, then you are pretty blessed. And you know what? I can point my finger, but there's eight of them coming right back at me. Because about six or seven years ago, I was out on a run, and I tore my meniscus severely. And I went in to see the doctor, the orthopedic surgeon, and his answer to me was not what I wanted to hear. His answer to me was, I can do absolutely nothing to fix that. Nothing. He says, we can do surgery, but surgery does not repair a torn meniscus. All we do is we go in and we cut out what is torn. You're going to have to live with this. I'm a guy who runs 80 miles a week at the time. This, this was my joy. This was, this was sort of my, my identity. When I was in Ireland... They called me the runner man. Oh, you're the runner man, are you? <laughs> you want to know how, how it, it controlled me? I was in a bike accident. Both arms went through the windshield, I'm sorry, the passenger's window of a car. Shattered them out completely. Severed the tendons in my right, left hand. Broke both my wrists, broke my thumbs. Two days later, I'm running on the riverbank with two casts on. And I remember hitting a tree root and thinking, I'm going down. What am I? I'm a face plant. I'm an idiot. I know. But that's who we are. 
We think our lives are wrapped up in all. But I remember when I tore my meniscus, I sat out on my deck. And for about 10 minutes, I had a royal pity party. And I'm not proud of it. I, I look back, and it's embarrassing. I was acting like a spoiled, entitled child of God. We're entitled to nothing. Everything that you and I have is all a gift. Everything. What makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And now if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? Everything comes from God. Every good gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. God never changes, neither shadow of change. That is our God. And our God is good. And chastisement, correction, and affliction is because God is good. And we can say amen to that. And we can live our lives anchored to that. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept thy word. What do afflictions do for you? What does chastisement do for you? After you get over the moaning and the groaning, you start looking to God. You start opening his word. You start realizing what really matters in life. God is good to me. And it has been good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Later on in that same psalm, he says, I know, O Lord, that thou art righteous, and you are right. And you in faithfulness have afflicted me. Chastisement never seems to be joyous in the present moment, does it? But there's things that chastisement, God's discipline and correction can produce that nothing else can produce for you. Nothing else can do it. Nothing else can make you humble. Nothing else can turn your eyes off of your problems and turn your eyes toward Jesus. Nothing else will cause you to start counting all the blessings in life. Nothing else will force you to look to eternity where one day every tear will be dry and our bodies and our minds will be completely whole. That's what our God does for us. The writer of Hebrews said this, when they were going through such severe persecution, he says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be faint when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as a child. For what son is there whom his father has not chastened? I remember when my father scourge me. He'd take off his belt 
And my dad would do it with a tear in his eye. I'll never forget getting caught in a sinful act and my dad coming around the back of the garage. Neighbor just had a baby. <laughs> a box of cigars. It's a boy. I mean, a whole box of them. Well, we snuck into his house and stole his box of cigars, and we went behind the garage, and we were just... My dad didn't need to spank me. I was sick as a dog. <laughs> but all it took... I'll never forget this. My dad walked around the garage, and he looked at me in the eye, and it was a look of disappointment. I wished he would have took out his belt and flogged me, I would have felt a lot better. I went in, and he was sitting at breakfast. And he just looked at me, didn't say a word, and then just shook his head and got up and walked out. I never touched another cigarette, smoke, nothing the rest of my life. That, that, that did it. And my dad did it because he loved me. Not because he didn't care about me. And our Heavenly Father, if we have a God in Heaven who's eternal, eternally loving, how much more will we not be reverent to the eternal Spirit who's God and sovereign over everything? No chastisement for the present time seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who are trained by it. The word trained is the word gymnasium. You go to the gym and you train and you work out and you walk out of that gym and you are fitter than when you walked in, hopefully. And you are more like Christ when you've been in the gymnasium of affliction. In that passage, we find, you're saying, Pastor, we're going to be here till 1 o'clock. Well, we might be. I haven't even got to Amos. <laughs> in this passage, we find five in Hebrews. There's five, and more than that, but I see five of them that are just jump off the page to you. And once, one is, you've you got to go back to Hebrews 12.1 to get the full context. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Why does God discipline us? Why does God afflict us? Why does God put us in the gymnasium? Because the Christian life is a marathon, it is not a sprint. Second reason, it proves that God loves us and that he's dealing with us as a child. You know what it says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24? It says, he who hates his son spares the rod, but the one who loves his child disciplines him Old King James, B-times. That means often. When I was a kid, I thought it was B-times. They just kept staying. <laughs> but that's, that's what Proverbs tells us. And when God does it, he's dealing with us as a son. Arguing from the lesser to the greater, we naturally reverence our earthly fathers because they knew what they thought was best. But our God does it so that we might be formed into the image of his dear son. Correction and discipline moves us forward to holiness and godly character. And all discipline, all affliction, 
Remind yourself of this this morning. I don't know what you're going through, and it may be something that you have to carry to the grave, but every affliction is momentary and light compared to the glory that will be revealed in us one day. For our outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we don't look on the things that are seen. We look on the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's our God, and that's what we have to look forward to. Now in Amos, God deals with the children of Israel almost like a shepherd would. The shepherd goes out and he distinguishes and he finds out what, which sheep is sick, which one needs to be carried, which one needs to be brought to the water, which one does he take his staff and knock it on the head and get it back with the rest of the sheep? And Amos is, through Amos' preaching here, God is acting almost as a doctor as well. He's diagnosing the problem. He's showing what the treatment is. And he's telling us what the ultimate cure is. So the diagnosis. The diagnosis, when God diagnoses our sin. It's because we have become apathetic about what is eternal. That is why God brings corrective discipline in our lives. It's because we have become apathetic about what is eternal. And we've got satisfied in what is temporary. And we need a good wake-up call. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. We hear the sarcasm here, don't we? A little bit of irony calling the people cows. And he's addressing the lady folk because when you look at the depravity of a people, when women lose their tenderness and when women lose their compassion and their soft, tender heart toward the poor, you know that an entire people group has gone off the deep end. Because God has created men and women differently. Women naturally have a more compassionate, sympathetic. You look at my house. My wife gets disgusted with me sometimes with what I laugh at. So, and she's just about as bad as I am. <laughs> we'll watch these people who go, go stumbling down the stairs and, you know, and, and break every bone in their body, and, and, you know, and, and I get a kick out of it. <laughs> Tracy's looking at me like, you got a sick sense of humor. What's, what's wrong with you? I, I got a story for y'all about her, though. Uh-oh, that's right. This is, this is to draw y'all back into this, but one day my wife looked out the window, and uh, this has got nothing to do with anything spiritual, and I was trying to fix my riding lawnmower, and I'd ran over a couple of boulders, and so it pushed in the guard, and so the blade was bang and bang, bang, 
So I thought, I don't know how I'm going to fix this thing. I said, oh, yeah, I know what I'll do. So I take this riding lawnmower, I pick it up, and I prop it and stand it up right now. And I go into my, <laughs> my garage, and I, I grab an axe. And there's a sharp end and a blunt end. I'm smart enough to use the blunt end. And so I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm trying to bang that thing out. I said, man, I can't get a good whack at it. So I stand right in front of that thing. And I'm banging the tar out of that thing. I said, man, I'm moving it now. My wife's looking out the window. She says, he is going to knock himself cold. <laughs> sure enough, it glances off that thing and hits me right in the head. <laughs> and I, I, I'm staggering around the driveway. And I'm rubbing my head. Oh, 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 oh. I don't even like, I don't like to have my blood drawn. I hate it. I had an appointment with the clinic, and I had to reschedule because I wouldn't go in and get my blood drawn. And all I did was like one look at that blood. I said, oh, and I got really faint. And I'm crawling up the steps. Tracy. <laughs> she had no compassion. <laughs> she had tears coming down, not because she felt my pain, because she was laughing so hard. <laughs> She's still laughing today. <laughs> Okay, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I don't know where I'm at, but oh, yes, I do. When women lose their compassion and their tenderness, you know <laughs> the cross house is out of control. There's no hope. But you cows of Bashan. Now, where was Bashan? Bashan was an upper plateau that was lush. It had the best grass. It had the best pasture. And he's saying, woe to you, ladies, because right now Israel has got it so good. This is the most prosperous time in Israel's history. King Jeroboam II had so many reforms that brought blessing monetarily, brought blessings physically, and the people got apathetic about what is eternal. So that is when God diagnoses our problem, is when you and I are no longer concerned and no longer driven by what is eternal. I was talking to a man just yesterday. We were talking about evangelism. And he says, you know what? I have got to confess and I've got to rekindle my heart's desire realizing that hell is an eternal place of punishment. When we get apathetic about that, God needs to wake us up and remind us of what is eternal. And these lady folk, what did they do? They were on the hills of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. There's a spiritual implication there. The mountain of Samaria. You remember the woman at the well? What did she say to Jesus? You Jews worship in Jerusalem, and we worship where? Up on this mountain. Exactly, Jeremy. And that was also a place of fertileness. When there's drought in the valley, you can always go up into the mountains and find green pasture. And that's where these people were feeding. They were feeding on the lushness of the economic reforms and the political might of Jeroboam II. But what were they doing? 
They were oppressing the poor. They were crushing the needy. And who says, and the Hebrew word is Adonai, and it's translated in the New King James, husbands, who say to their husbands, say to their family, say to their master, bring, let us drink. We don't care about other people. We are looking at the temporal life that we have right now, and that's when God needs to bring chastisement in it because it brings us about to what's really important. So here's the diagnosis. Verses 4 and 5, God says, not only do you look on the physical things that you have right now, but you have perverted true worship. This is when God needs to chastise us. 4 and 5. Come to Bethel. Look at the irony here. Look at the tongue-in-cheek. Come to Bethel. Bethel is where they had set up an altar to a golden calf. That's where they went up to worship. They went to Bethel. He says, come to Bethel. Go through all of your religious formality. Jump through all the right hoops. Look good on the outside. But what you're, what you're actually doing Come to church with a bad conscience. Come to church and judge other people. Come to church and, and begrudgingly put your, your offering in, in, in the place. Come and transgress. Just go through the motions. That's what he's saying here. Come to Bethel and transgress. And at Gilgal, what was Gilgal? Gilgal was a very important place for the children of Israel. The Hebrew word literally means rolling away. Gilgal is where they rolled away the reproach of Egypt, where God took a new group of people, and he said, all of that is behind you. It's all past, and I am forgiving you, and I am going to bring you into the promised land, and all the reproach and all the shame, it's been rolled away. He says, go to those two places and multiply transgression." Bring your sacrifices every morning. Go ahead, do it. Bring your tithes every three days. I mean, you can, you can just go overboard. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And what were they giving it with? They were giving it with leaven. That's the way God sees it. When he is not first and when he's not a priority and we're not worshiping the true and living God, it's all just a formality. Offer it with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offering. For this you love, you children of Israel. So that's the diagnosis. Now, what is the treatment? The treatment is corrective punishment. Verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read it real quick, but I want you to notice how many times it says, I will. Chastisement is not a coincidence. Chastisement is not accidents. Corrective discipline is the active hand of God trying to draw us closer to Him. Now, I know a lot of suffering in life and a lot of affliction is just because that's the natural course since the fall. A lot of it just is because we live in a broken world and a broken society things decay. A lot of it. But there are also times in life where God sovereignly steps in and says, I want to bring you closer to me. So see how many times it says, I will here. 
starting in verse 6. For I gave, I have, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and the lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. See how many times this phrase is repeated too. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city, and I withheld city from, an, from another. I withheld, withheld rain from another city. On one part it was rained upon, where it did not have rain, and the other part withered. So two or three cities wandered together to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. It's corrective, isn't it? Verse 9, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards and your olive trees, and, your, then, and the locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you the plagues after the manner of Egypt. Your young men, I, God says, I killed with the sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not yet returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. The only reason some of you escaped is because I snatched you out out of my love and out of my goodness, yet you have not returned to me says the Lord. So we can see here that God's treatment is corrective punishment to draw us to himself. Nine times, God said, I will. I will do this. I will have this, this come into your life. And it's a promise from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Chapter 27 is all the blessings that Israel would get if they lived by the law. And chapter 28 was all the things that God would do when they started walking away from God. This is in God's faithfulness. This is in God's goodness. You remember what David said? Oh, Lord, in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. Before I went astray, I was afflicted. And then I learned your precepts. Deuteronomy 28 says this, starting with verse 21. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until it's consumed you off the land that you are inning to take possession of. The Lord will strike you with wasting and disease and with fever and inflammation and fiery heat and drought and blight and mildew. They will pursue you until you perish. The heavens over your head will be like bronze and the earth underneath you will be like iron. The Lord will make it not to rain on your land. The God will rain powder on you. From the dust of heaven will come down until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. This is all because God cares about his people. And when we are afflicted, God is giving us the treatment for our problem, and our problem is that we are no longer eternally minded. What else was God showing them? The Lord shows the Israelites, and he shows us the exact same thing, that our sufficiency is all from God. I withheld the rain. I gave you cleanness of teeth. Well, what does that mean, cleanness of teeth? The other day, my wife and I were eating turkey. You know how turkey just gets stuck in your teeth. And my wife kept coming over to me. 
Pat, if I got it all out of my teeth, and I kept looking, yeah, you got it all. I don't know, we were getting ready to go for a run or something with Kelly, and then she grabbed a water bottle, and she just rinsed her mouth again. She said, you know what? That's because we have got plenty in our house. And God says, I'm the one who gave you plenty, and I'm also the God who can take it away. And I'm doing it to correct you. He says, you came together to one city thinking that you could figure out how to get through this drought. And God said, I'm not going to let you get satisfied. You know, one of the greatest blessings that God does for us is he takes away our joy and our satisfaction from earthly things so that our eyes are back on Christ. The Lord shows us that he alone is sufficient. The Lord, in his correction, knows where and when to hit us. Every one of you has got something that if God puts his finger on it, you start to withdraw and say, ouch, I don't like that. And you know exactly what it is. And so does God. Why did God withhold the rain? And when did God withhold the rain? He did it three months from the harvest. He knew exactly when and where and how to get this agrarian society. If it had been too early, it wouldn't have affected them. If he withheld the rain, it wouldn't have bothered them. But right when the crops needed it the most, and God does the same thing. Our God doesn't do surgery with a sledgehammer. He does it with a scalpel and a surgeon's precision because he knows exactly where you and I need to be hurt in order to be healed. A lack of satisfaction in our pursuits. God can wither the harvest, and God, by his divine hand, can take away our influence and our significance. God can create the natural and the spiritual distress in our lives to draw us to himself. Now, what is the cure? The cure is that phrase, yet you have not returned to me. That's the cure. Isn't it simple? Aren't you glad that it is so easy? And aren't you glad this morning that the solution is all grace. He didn't tell them to do a bunch of works. He didn't tell them to do a bunch of sacrifices. In fact, later on, he says, get rid of all of your worship music. Sorry, Caleb, you wouldn't point it. <laughs> that worship this morning, by the way, was fantastic. I, I, my heart was so prepared. I, I, I know I'm chasing a lot of rabbits this morning. Sorry, forgive me. But I... I, I got a little app on my phone that I play on Sunday morning, and it's, it's hymns. And I came in, and I was singing a hymn. And then I got busy, and I forgot about worship. And then when we came in here, there was something powerful about corporate worship. But Amos says in chapter 5, and, and that's another sermon coming down the road, but if it's not heartfelt worship, just get it out. Don't even bother. He says, let righteousness run down like water and God's mercy like a mighty stream. Take away the noise of your vials and all that hoopla, whatever. So God can point us back to him. And that's the solution. It's all grace. Yet you have not returned. Yet, that little phrase yet implies something. If they hadn't sat down That's a phrase from the book of Hosea. 
the exact same thing in Hosea was going on. They had come back to the land to rebuild the temple, and they got busy rebuilding their own houses. You know what God said? He says, you've got pockets, and you're trying to stuff your money in it, but your pockets got holes in it. And that's what God is trying to do. When God frustrates us, it's not because God is this capricious, angry, arbitrary God that just does it because he wants to. It's because he loves us, and he wants us to sit down and say, God, maybe there's something wrong in my heart, and maybe that's why everything's going amiss. The second thing, God wants us to draw near to him, a personal relationship. When God drove Adam out of the garden, why did he do it? Because he didn't want him to eat of the tree of life and to live forever without a dependency and without a relationship to God. That would have been hell on earth. Living eternally separated from God in our sinful condition. God wants us to draw close to him. That's what the solution is. That's the cure. Verse 12 of Amos. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The other part of the cure is understanding who our God is. For behold, here he is, he who forms the mountain, and creates the wind. That's our God. And I don't know what you're facing, but a God who can create the mountains and a God who can form the winds is a God that you can trust when you're going through your affliction and when you're going through your trials. He is all-powerful. Ah, Lord God, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by Thy great power, Nothing is too difficult for thee. That's our God. And we need to prepare to meet him. What else is our God? He declares to man what his thought is. You pick up this book. It's a discerner of your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Prepare to meet that God who knows every intricate thought Prepare to meet this God who treads on the high places of the earth. The Lord of hosts is his name. That is the cure. Correction is needed because it reveals when you and I have drifted far from God. It exposes the shallowness of life without Jesus. It displays our hypocrisy when we feel like we're content and we're spiritually worshiping God when He is really not our priority. It treats the root problem when we're looking for satisfaction in life apart from the life giver. The remedy is so simple. We no longer replace the gifts. We now seek the gift giver. When judgment cannot be averted, we need to prepare to meet the only true God. He does that which is best in our lives. I'll, I'll finish with the lyrics of a, 
a song that, that Tracy and I loved growing up. The man's name was Ron Hamilton. He wrote a song called, Oh, Rejoice in the Lord. He wrote it after surgery. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and the brain tumor was right behind his left eye. The doctor said, the only way for me to treat you is to remove your eye. You know how precious our sight is and how precious our eyes are. And he came out of that surgery only having his right eye. And he asked his wife to bring him. He was a songwriter because he had been meditating on what had happened, losing that eye and all that he'd gone through. And he wrote some of the... I won't give you the whole song, but this is the first verse. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness he giveth a song. Father knows best, and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He maketh no mistake. He knows the end of each path that I take. And when I am tried, I am purified. And I come forth as gold. Father, we do thank you for your loving correction in our lives. God, I don't know where people are at today, God, but every one of us can get distracted so easily by the things of this life. Oh, God, bring us back to what's really important. God, thank you that you are the satisfier, that, God, that you are the real joy giver. God, the solution is so simple. Just return to me and be prepared to meet our God. The Lord of hosts is his name. You tread on the high places of the earth. Lord, today we love you because you first loved us. And God, we thank you and we count it joy when we encounter diverse testings, knowing that the trying of our faith worketh patience. And patience has its complete and work so that we might be entire, lacking nothing. Thank you.